Ephesians 4, verse 28. One verse today, so we should be out early if you listen well. Um, Verse 28 of chapter 4. We're going to get there in just a second, but I want you to know I had a moment when I was sitting down to study of concern, and the concern uh, was just the fact that we're in a section uh, of Scripture where Paul is uh, week after week after week after week giving us these really specific instructions, and if we're not careful, this is my concern, if we're not careful, um, this is going to sound like moralism to some of you. Um, do you know what I mean by that? It, it's going to turn into these things that God gives the church into um, religion or legalism or man-made effort. Um, you know, it's kind of the thing that's in us. We all better try harder, better be good. You know, hedge your bets on eternity. Make sure that when it all ends, your good pile is a little bit taller than your bad pile and then you're okay, right? And it's not like anybody preached that sermon because that would get blown up. But we did get taught it somewhere. Somewhere out there, it rings try harder, work harder, um, be good or else, right? And, and I think it's not just that, that those things have, I, I guess, shaped us from outside us. There's another issue with these instructions. Our pride wants to hear religion too. Our pride wants to respond to what God says about our heart and say, it's not that bad. Come on, God, you're, you're just exaggerating to make a point. I'm not that dead. And so we, we struggle, our pride struggles with his declaration of our condition and, and it wants to believe that somehow we can do something to contribute to my own salvation. I want to believe that I can do and fix, right? I can pull myself up by own spiritual bootstraps. Here's what we've learned. If you've been through the journey of, of the, this letter to the Ephesians from Paul, our problem's too great. It's far too great for us to be able to help ourselves. Our condition is way more permanent without God's help. And so there is no possible way that a dead heart can produce living actions. So when Paul lays out for the church living actions and your heart is dead or you don't perceive the problem to be that great, there's just no way. All you can do is shoot with religion. All you can do is go after it with moralism and hope that your good pile is bigger than your bad pile because at this point, you don't get God's declaration of the issue, Okay. You cannot, in other words, yank these paragraphs out of the entire context of all Ephesians. If you do, if you do, you're going to end up somewhere else like moralism. You will. Okay? This part of Ephesians follows a very deep dive from Paul into the problem of sin and the solution of God. That's what it does. And if we don't lay that lens on these instructions, we're going to miss the point. The problem, the problem is that we're all spiritually dead, according to Paul. Can't see, see God. Can't hear God don't want God. In fact, it gets so twisted, we want to be our own God. That's how bad the dead heart affects us. And so therefore, without any concern for God whatsoever, we become world champions at sin, and we hurt ourselves, and we hurt other people. That's what we can do. That's all I can do without God. And here's the thing, that kind of life, and you probably have learned this, it can never satisfy Just choosing a life without God can never produce any kind of lasting joy. So what does the broken spiritual mind that Paul says we have without Christ, what does it do to all the the problems of ourselves? Well, it simply tries to do self-improvement. That's all it can do. So religion, legalism. Some people have shelves of bottles of different things to try to help cope with, with their feelings. 
Some people go to explore their inner child. Some people get into creative visualization. And there's a thousand other ways, a thousand other alternatives to truth. But the truth is, what we've learned from Paul in this letter is that you and I were made by God and for God. And anybody who lives outside of that context will be self-imposed misery. That just will happen. There will be sin and misery. And that is the problem. It's our heart. And it's at war with God. That's the problem. Now, the great part about Paul's writings, he doesn't only describe the condition, he describes a solution. And God's solution is pretty amazing. It's not just that God is, it's who God is. In fact, we've learned this, that God is a God of grace, love, and mercy. Let me remind you of what we've studied so far. And tell me, this doesn't warm your heart. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Anybody? If you want to understand where these particular instructions fit, it's right here. Right after Paul gets done describing the problem, he shows us the grace of God and says, now, now place my instructions in the grace of God. This is a story of the grace of God. God's solution to our problem is to simply lavish on us what we don't deserve. He gives us grace and mercy and he makes us alive and he prepares us to do good. That's what Paul says, right? That's what he said right there in, in chapter two. In other words, we don't follow a list of rules in the hope of helping ourselves or appeasing a holy God. That is not the effort of our activities. We don't obey God to somehow make him go, okay, I, I guess I'll cut you some slack because you tried. That's not why we do it. We follow a savior because he loved us unto new life. Therefore, his commands aren't a ladder to get us to God. Like, I just gotta get better. And it's certainly not a weight for us to bear. That's not what his instructions are supposed to be. That's not what they are. His commandments, now listen to this, are another gift from the loving Father. That's what his commandments are. And if you see commandments any other way, then you're gonna be stuck in moralism, trying to improve yourself to hope that you earn something from God, okay? But here's, here's why this is a loving gift from God. Because your joy and my joy is most profoundly realized in walking in the good works that he made you to walk in. God says, I want you to be blessed and I want you to know joy and I want you to know peace and happiness. Walk this way and you'll get it because walking that way produces that. And that's why God in his giftedness to us gives us these instructions. Now, the reason why it was worth spending those few minutes talking about this is for us to get another look at the grace of God. And so we have to be absolutely certain we're looking through that lens as we look at these commandments of new life that Paul lays out for us now throughout the rest of the chapter. Because if you don't see these things through the lens of grace, you're gonna end up in the wrong place. Do you understand? This is gonna be miserable to you. These will not be words of life. These will be words of debt. And you're gonna be worn out by this instruction. But if you see them through this lens, then this is a list of grace. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the subject of lying. Verse 25. That, that instruction was grace. Because in telling the truth, there is life. And everyone who knows who've lived a lie or spend their time in lying, there's misery in that. There's the cover-up for that. There's the pain of that. 
There's the ripple effect of that. Verses 26 and 27, we dealt with anger. That's a discussion of grace. Angry people get treated like they're angry people. That's not a blessing. So we add one more to our discussion today. This one is also about grace. Look at verse 28. And then we're going to ask God to just really convict our hearts with this one. Pretty simple. Doesn't need a lot of theological like gymnastics to explain it here. Simply says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. God, this is a simple instruction. But again, it's not anything that we can actually do unless grace is the motivator. God, let let us, allow us, convict us to see the truth in our own hearts. Every one of us have corners and places where we hide things. I pray your Holy Spirit to do his work now. Pray that you guard my lips and warm our hearts to your grace, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're going to ask a series of questions, and hopefully the answers will get us close to what God's thoughts are on the matter of stealing. And uh, so let me ask you the first question. It's going to sound absurd, okay? I'm not, going to, I'm not treating you like children, but it's worth the ask. What is stealing? <laughs> Everyone in here looked at me like I'm crazy, because um, I think there's, a, there's way more sophistication in this than just what popped in your head. Beyond what modern life has given us, this new standard of living that's ridiculous compared to the rest of the world, it has also created this sophistication with sins. Like we've invented like amazing ways to do these things, right? They're not the old-fashioned ways. They're great ways to, to sin, and stealing is one of those things. We all know that the basic understanding of stealing is that we take something that belongs to someone else, it doesn't belong to us. In the ancient world, it's pretty simple. If I come to your house and I steal your cow, I'm a thief, right? That's how it works, and that's how they would, that's how that would be done in that culture. They were next to each other. They saw what another person had and they said, I want it for myself. And they took it. Easy to spot, easy to see. That's what it was. And to be honest, that's the biggest, clearest understanding for us regarding stealing. In the Ten Commandments, Eighth Commandments, commandments, four words. That's how simple this is to instruct. You shall not steal. There's no commentary on it. There's no, uh, no... explanation, just simply, you know you're not supposed to do it. No need to extrapolate. You shall not steal. So let's just assume that that definition works for us. Do you think we have a problem? And in the answer to this question is going to expose that we have created ways to break this law without stealing somebody's cow, is my point, okay? Do you think we got a problem? It's okay if you don't answer. It's all right. If our only... Um, definition is the most obvious one, then most of us can sit in this room and say, no. You know, to be honest, last time I stole anything, if that's the definition, was 1966. I can actually remember it. I remember having to build a fort like every young man has to do, and I didn't have supplies. So the greenhouse down the street had nails. Where do you get nails? You take them. Amen. Amen. Somebody get an amen for stealing. That's not good. (laughs) Missing the point. Um, But if stealing is just taking your neighbor's nails, then I quit that a long time ago. That's like 50-some years ago, okay? But we we don't do that. We're too mature to take somebody's stuff, right? We wouldn't do that. Steal from my neighbor? I wouldn't do that. I'm, on the other hand, more like Robin Hood. 
right? So, so I steal from the rich to give to the poor, and the poor is me. So these big conglomerates, these big businesses, these big companies who have more than enough, way more than enough, what would they mind if I just fudge it a little bit here, take a little bit there? What, if, what would it would matter if I came out on top when I know that I shouldn't have done what I have done? I want to just uh, take care of myself. One out of 11 people shoplift. 27 million people a year. That means there's some shoplifters in the house. <laughs> just doing the math. 25% are children, 75% are adults, which proves that discipleship works, even in the negative. Here's something else interesting. 73% of them who have shoplifted, it wasn't premeditated. If you want to talk about a kind of a discussion on the inclination of the human heart, the darkness of the human heart, you don't have to plan anything. It just happens. Bingo. It's mine. 13 billion worth of goods stolen every year. 35 million every day. 33% is employee theft. Now, when we think of stealing, that's pretty much it. Which, if that's the only definition of stealing, 10 out of 11 of you are okay. And you can just leave and everything's fine. But I think there's some more complexity to this subject matter than just the obvious. We steal in other ways. What about time theft? Coming in late, leaving, an er- leaving early, taking long lunches, calling in fake sick, <coughs> that thing. Surfing the web on the clock. How about cheating on taxes? How about just not reporting? You know, this, the, the few things. I mean, who's it hurting? Really, the government's got more money than they need, so we don't report everything. Nobody will know. Nobody will check. Nobody will find out. How about stealing ideas? What about not paying your bills when you said that you would pay them? And you put your lender out to dry. How about sharing software with friends, families, and neighbors? How about ripping music or movies off the internet and not paying the creator for those goods. What about not returning what you borrow? What about insurance fraud? I had a gentleman after the last service who is a police officer with Phoenix who all he does is insurance fraud. And he said, you would not believe. A real crime might have taken place. Someone might have had a break-in, but they won't report the two things stolen. They'll report the 20 things that weren't. Pocket the bill. And here's a biggie, just to make certain everyone makes it to this. Um, what about stealing from God? Malachi. Will man rob God? Yeah, you're robbing me, God says. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Hold a little back. I understand the concept that it all belongs to God. 100% is God, and I'm supposed to sort out how much of God's money I'm supposed to use for me, but I don't feel that way. I don't live that way. I live like it's all mine. I don't owe God anything. Well, let me just ask you this question again. Is it a problem, church? I think so. Perhaps for some more than others. So let's answer this question next. Why? Why do we steal? I'll tell you this. I think it's an issue of doubt. Let's just start there. I think it's potentially an issue of doubt. 
when true believers steal. Now, here's what Paul is dealing with, right? This is the church. These aren't unbelievers. These are believers. These have been Gentile people saved into the church, still stealing. And so Paul instructs them. So when true believers steal, sometimes it's because they doubt whether God can or will provide for them. Like, God, I'm looking at my circumstances here. And something's got to break. Something's got to happen here. I have to take care of myself, right? That happens. But here's what we declare when we call ourselves believers. We declare the good news. The good news. The gospel. That we are far more loved than you could possibly fathom. You can't get your head around how much the Father loves you. You are his children and he's your dad. That's what we say with the gospel. The gospel says that he determines our needs. And then he meets the needs he determines. How great of a deal is that? That's what the good news says. Stealing is sometimes a result of, of, of a faith struggle. First of all, I doubt whether God really understands my situation. Like, I know he's got bigger fish to fry, and these are the details of my story, so I won't trouble him. Or we get right down to it. We don't, we don't think he cares like he should care. But let me just remind you, that's absurd. Sometimes we treat God more like a government subsidy than a father in heaven. We have a need, so we apply to have our needs met. We wait in line because we're just a number. And it may or may not happen, to be honest with you. God's got another timetable, if he's interested at all. That's kind of how we feel about it. But let me just take you back to the creator of this whole concept of parenting. What parent in here? And I see many of you who are parents. Most of us have been. What parent in here isn't keenly aware of your child's need? I don't care how old they are. All my kids are done, man. I'm right on it all the time. Any need, I'm there. And what parent wouldn't move heaven and earth to meet that need? And you question whether God's interested or whether he knows or whether he's got good timing or whatever. And so you want to solve your problems yourself. Here's what Paul in the book of Philippians says about our God. My God will supply every need, not some needs, every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Remember when we talked about this earlier, when we made the distinction between out of his, out of his riches and according to his riches, out of his riches is kind of like a stingy father who's going, oh, I guess I can pay for that. According to riches, it's this lavishness. The bank vault's open. God's just gonna give according to his immeasurable riches is what Paul says. So why do we doubt? Okay, that's one. Sometimes it's a matter of doubt. Here's another thing. Sometimes stealing is an issue of want little snippet from King David on want. I'm certain you'll be able to, to uh, echo this. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's kind of in there, isn't it? In other words, you and I will not have a lack of anything the good shepherd thinks is good for me. Pretty good promise, isn't it? Lord is my shepherd, no wants, according to what he determines. Here's another one, Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now listen very carefully. In other words, finding my delight in God will always, get this, always result in fulfilled desires. And here's why. Because what you will want will contribute to the delight in God. It's an awesome thing. The more we get close to God, the more we want what God wants, and the more he provides our hearts what we need to want him more. This is a no-lose situation. That's what the psalmist says. But where we get in trouble is, is where we want joy without God. I just want joy. God, you can sit this one out. I'll make it happen. Or wanting something God hasn't provided. 
And here's the routine of all that kind of bad thinking. Godless want will drive us to take things that don't belong to us to try to satisfy a longing not built by the Father. That's just what happens. Something, I want something. Something that, that God isn't providing. And so this godless desire just kind of feeds that, that beast. I'll give you a third thing, issue in stealing. Sometimes stealing is an issue of self. That may sound very similar to um, want, but I think there's some nuance in it we need to talk about. Stealing, in essence, doesn't care about anybody but itself. Right? That's the truth. And here's the kicker. In order to steal, we have to do harm to our neighbor who God set us free to love and to serve. In fact, the second commandment, which is the way to obey the first commandment, is to love your neighbor as yourself. The only way you can steal is not care at all about your neighbor at that moment, right? Because I care about me. In fact, the way we define this gospel story is that God has recreated us to be a people for others. That's the expression of the good news. I was turned inward before Jesus. I was confused about what the problem was. I was trying to sort it out in my own soul. I was trying to get happiness and joy and satisfaction in all the wrong places, but now the lights are on. The mind can think, I've been renewed in my soul, and now I don't want those things anymore. Not at all. I am now made to be a people for others. The good news says that we've been set free from our former life. We've been set free from our old motives and our own former self. That's what the gospel says. Galatians chapter five. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Now get this, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. (laughs) Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Stealing isn't the action for others, it's the action for self. And according to the gospel, we've been set free from that. In fact, if you take those three reasons from doubt, want, and self, and you wrap them all together, you get the explanation for all the damage you see in our world. Because without a God, without, if you say there is no God, then my only shot to find or fill the hole, avoid in my own life is to get mine. It's my only shot. So we take now, some of us have good memories, and we can remember what our life was like without Christ living like that. That was the definition of our life without Jesus. Get mine. But here's something that we can all share. All of us, all of us in this room have moments when the dead man rattles again, and the flesh wants to do old things for old reasons. That's true, right? That's why this instruction for Paul works. He gives us three simple things to do about that. I'm certain it could be more, I guess, more detailed, but we're not going to get more detailed. Paul simply says, verse 28, here's my paraphrase, work hard because it's good. The phrase that he uses is let him labor. Do you see it in verse 28? That is Paul's response to stealing. Let him labor. The word labor is the word toil. All of it sounds like four-letter words to us, doesn't it? Labor, toil, eh. Yesterday, my wife found a sprinkler that was broken in the backyard, Okay. And it was one of those underground gushers, like it was at the center of the earth, kind of opened hole. And it was buried under this big, giant, man-eater bush. And I just, I learned this, but I already knew this. I hate yard work. Hate it, like hate it. And I'm out there with a shovel. I'm getting angry and angry, just getting mad. I'm pitching this thing. And I hate dirt. I hate all this stuff. Um, Toil. That's what I think of. I think of work, it's digging in the yard. That's toil. And most of us hear Paul's response to stealing like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a prison sentence. Let him do labor. That's how it comes across. Like, oh, I guess I screwed up. I need to do labor. Um, That's not at all what Paul means. 
Paul's talking about a holy endeavor. Labor isn't a dirty word. It's a holy word. Paul's answer to stealing is to call us to work. And if that doesn't sound good to you, then you're not placing enough weight on ordinary things, ordinary things like work. Holy toil is the word. Might change some things. Let me help us. Um, Almost all of us know this verse. When Paul tells the church in Corinth, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, right? And he even throws in whether you eat, whether you drink. Just try to push it down to the most mundane things in your world. Whatever you do to the glory of God. So let me just paraphrase that so we don't miss it. Whatever it is we do in our work isn't a necessary evil. It's an opportunity for worship. If I can eat to the glory of God, then I'm a massive worshiper. You should see me this afternoon. I'm gonna eat to the glory of God. Work isn't something to do, isn't something to endure, something to avoid. It's holy commission. Adam was called to work before the fall, church. Jesus, the savior of the world, worked as a carpenter. Paul, the foremost apostle, was a tent maker. Work is not bad, it's good. It's always been good. The reason why Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather have him labor, because in Paul's mind, it's a laziness issue. And here's the kicker. The cure to laziness isn't stop being lazy. The cure to laziness is see work differently. Because if work is just something to avoid, if it's just in the way, if it's just misery, if it's digging in the yard for me, then you're missing the point about work. Paul puts divine weight on labor. The answer to you trying to fill your own needs is to work and do good work is his point. Work is so much more than just earning a paycheck. It's the expression of God's created giftedness in you. God made you a certain way. Some of you who are great with math and you're doing accounting work, God bless you. And every time you answer a problem and sort out an issue, you are expressing the very giftedness God put in you. And if you happen to be a plumber and every time you fix a leak, you express the giftedness of that mechanical mind. Every time you're an engineer and you're inventing new ways to do old things, you're expressing the giftedness of God. And it's an action of praise. So what do you do about stealing? Paul says, labor for the good of it. That's what you do. Change how you feel about the things you have to do. He goes on, and let me give you another one. Don't just work. How about this? Don't waste your work. In fact, the phrase that Paul uses here in verse 28 is, but rather let him labor, (laughs) this is a qualifier, doing honest work with his own hands. (laughs) Not just labor, but honest labor with your own hands. So don't waste your work. I think sometimes if I say to you work hard and you go, that's me? All I ever do is work hard. But your work might not be honorable. And there is another problem. And Paul suggests that if you work for the right reasons and you do work the right way, it also contributes to you winning the victory over taking. All right? Maybe we work hard, but maybe it isn't honorable. By that, I simply mean we do shady deals. We're not fair. We want to come out on top. We want to always come out on top. In fact, the language our culture uses to describe how we want to do business is, I totally stole that. Seems weird to me. We're not interested in a good deal for everybody, just a good deal for me. And if that's true, then you know... um, where your hard work goes, it goes to you. Manipulation of others. And I would suggest to you that's not honest work, biblically. Honest work is simply two things, I think. One is doing the right kind of work, God-honoring work, 
right? And doing it the right way, which is others-focused. And I know you're going to go, that's absurd. Nobody ever gets along in business by thinking about others. But let me suggest to you it is the gospel, and it is Paul's point here. Honest work. And he adds another little condition with his own hands, which just helps us understand or imply the obvious, and that is this, that Paul stresses that every person should be responsible for work. And if you just want to lay back and accept what other people do for you because you don't want to work, Paul jumps on that by saying, work with your own hands. But let me just get to this point. This holy endeavor that I'm to do is for a reason. Verse 28, do you see it? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Anyone deny that that's there? Right there, if I put that on all your labor and all your paychecks, everyone's miserable. Because most of us, including myself, never, never even think about it. But Paul does. He says, let the thief no longer steal. So if I'm not stealing, what am I supposed to be doing? What Paul simply says is work for the margin. Work for the margin. Work for the extra so that you can meet needs. So the assumption is in work that, you know, by hard work, um, honorable work, yeah, you'll feed your family. You have a place to stay. Take care of your needs. That's assumed. But Paul puts on this whole other thing on work, and he says, do it so that. It doesn't say anything else, right? Just that. So that you might meet needs of others. So here's a more grand motivation to work. I work for the sake of others. In other words, good, hard, honest work enables me to be a person for others, which is what the gospel saved me to be. I keep saying this over and over again, and we've been saying it from the very beginning of our study in Ephesians, but the good news changes people, church. We're not like we used to be. We don't, we don't work like the world. We don't earn like the world. We don't serve like the world. We don't save like the world. We're different people, yes? If, if the gospel doesn't change all of us, if it only just gets us from, from hell to heaven, then we're not getting the picture of the gospel. It's a transformative word. It moves us to difference. It just does. And in this case, it gets really personal because now it's in my pockets. The gospel's in my pocketbook. And he suggests that I work for one reason. Get enough margin, get enough extra to take care of other people. Not because they won't work, because they're legitimate needs. And we run into them from time to time. The good news changes us. The old man who stole, the old man who did dishonest work, who worked for selfish reasons, according to Paul, he's dead. His mind's been changed. He's now wearing the life of Christ. That's who this new man is. And maybe you've heard this before, probably the most popular verse, for God so loved the world that he what? Okay. We replicate the giving nature of God by being a generous people to meet needs of others. That's just how it works. We're to be a generous people. And the only way to do it is to work for the margin. If, if everything, if everything's turned inwards, if everything's about the next for you, Lifestyle, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. If every dollar is spoken for, every dollar is spoken for, let me just ask you this question. Let it sink in. How can you obey this passage? Now, I know there's some people in greater need, and I understand you've got to work on it, but, but ultimately, when it's all said and done, Paul suggests that we should work for the sake of having margins to meet needs. It's not wrong to have things. I'm not saying that. And it's not, it's not wrong to have lots of things. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong at all. But it is wrong to have those things have you to such a degree that you can't obey this passage. 
And if we're just going to be blunt, it's wrong to steal in all those ways from God, from our world. And it's wrong, and let me just finish with this. It's wrong not to see your work as something for others. And what I mean by that is twofold. You have to see your work for the glory of God, first of all, and you have to see your work for the opportunity to meet needs that you meet. That is the gospel. God will provide, church. He makes a way. And, and to be fair, I, I meet the smallest number of people I meet are the people of need. We have so much. We have so much. And so Paul just says, listen, if you're a stealer, if you're a taker, if you want this whole thing to turn inward and you want to win every story, then you don't get the point. You've got to drive bigger than that. This is about holy toil that brings glory and a smile to the face of God while you look around and go, oh, I didn't know you had that need. Boom, I got enough. I got some. But the reality of it is, most of us aren't living right at the edge, so we have no margins. Most of us are trying to move that edge up. And that's where the margin goes. We don't want to stop living here. We want the life to go like this. And where does the extra go? I'll let the Holy Spirit tell us that. Let's pray. God, I pray for us. These are hard passages. Even in my own heart, I recognize failure and sin. Places where what I have is not enough. Places where I have, where I see a need but have no margin. But God, according, according to uh, Paul's instruction to the church, this good news really does free us. We don't have to live anymore to fulfill the, the indulges, the fleshly desires. We can live free. And so um, if we're stealing, God, in any way, shape, or form, bring conviction. God, if there are needs, I pray that we see them. If there's extra, I pray we give them. God, we do it all not to be loved because we've loved as much as, as an infinite God could love us, not to be saved because we're saved in holy people by the work of Christ alone. We do it simply because in this behavior, in this obedience, there is joy and satisfaction and honor and glory to you. And so we pray for those things in Christ's name, amen.